The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And I don't know, you know, don't consider this sort of a usual kind of meditation where you're systematically going through these 16 steps, but it is a way to learn the map and to begin to understand the map. And it might be something like for somebody who uses these 16 instructions from the Anapanasati Sutta, the Buddha's instructions on mindfulness of breathing, you know, it might be something once a month that a person would go through in a relatively systematic way to contemplate each of the 16 steps. But then most of our sits would be having learned the map to some degree, we would probably begin with, you know, that more exclusive attention to the breathing process like we did tonight, but then just see where the practice takes us. So it has a real intuitive element. And if you were to ask yourself, like, oh, how am I practicing? You might be able to place yourself somewhere in the 16 steps. And you'll see as I give us an overview of these 16 instructions, there's a real intuitive shape to how the Buddha organized these 16 instructions into four sets of four instructions. And uh, one of the most important points that I'd like to bring out tonight, and, and by the way, if anybody's interested in attending this fall retreat that I'll be leading for the San Diego community, we'll spend our time, at least the instructions, you know, with the four-day retreat, we'll really have time to uh, learn and see where these instructions can take us. So the, one of the main points in this, I mean, there's even a kind of provocative story. I mean, who knows whether these stories are really true, but there is a story that's handed down through the tradition um, that uh, during the time of the Buddha, even today, there is this instruction to bring to mind um, the different parts of the body as a as a means to help us develop some dispassion toward the body, you know, because basically it's skin and bones and, you know, the juicy stuff, the flesh and uh, skin, flesh, bones, probably a few other things, hair, and on and on like that. And it's... Uh, And so the Buddha gave this instruction, evidently, this is how the story goes, to some of the monks at the time. And then he wandered off. And, and, uh, but some of the monks in practicing by themselves really got out of balance and depressed and some even committed suicide. So it's said that the Buddha, having seen like that way of practicing, wasn't obviously very useful for some of the practitioners. So he he started to emphasize mindfulness of breathing because there is this element of pleasure all the way through. 
the heart still has to find its way to the place where it's willing to let go of attachment. It doesn't mean suicide, so please don't misunderstand the instructions. But because suicide is still attachment, like we're identified with the pain of being a human being and we want out. That's grasping. That's not, not attachment. So this place of balance where the heart lets go of any dependency. And, you know, the Buddha might have had deep insight, but he was still, through his years of being a teacher, learning how to articulate what had happened in his own practice in a way that would be helpful for others, right? So then what... uh, over the years, you know, he taught for about 40 years before he passed away. Uh, mindfulness of breathing became the predominant way. I mean, there are other instructions that the Buddha gave, but this is one he practiced himself all through his years, even after his awakening, which is telling. And he would, he would say about it, you know, experiencing the happiness of seclusion here and now. It's like, why wouldn't we do it? Why wouldn't we take a nice bath and put some, you know, I put cedar oil in my bath because I like the smell. So there's a very wholesome pleasure. And it starts with this, uh, in the first four instructions, is this realization, it's a real insight, that this mind, everybody's mind, all our hearts and mind, it's capable of dropping our addiction to the diversity of our experience. You know, like if there's a sound in the next room, I feel when my mind isn't in a sort of meditative space, I feel obliged to go to pay attention to that sound and to have an opinion about it, like try to figure out what it is and then decide whether I like that sound or not. And then there's this thing moving over there in that corner of the room, and then a thought, a memory, and in this way, we are afflicted in, an, in, in a very real way. I mean, it might sound a little over the top to say it this way, but we're tormented by the diversity of experience and our habit. It's really this habit that torments us to, you know, to, in experiencing some experience, to have an opinion about it, to be liking it or not liking it to be reacting to it in some way. So when we establish mindfulness to the fore, right, we begin, and then uh, in that being aware of the present moment, bringing the attention to the natural process of breathing in and breathing out, to whatever degree the mind, the heart is attending to that natural process of breathing in and breathing out, it's realizing I don't have to do, I don't have to attend to all the other phenomena that are coming going, coming and going in the field of my experience. And that's a real vacation from the diversity of experience. Now, it isn't a long-term strategy. It's a meditative technique to use some aspect, often a neutral aspect of our experience, and to gather 
one's attentiveness around something ordinary like the process of breathing in. And as I mentioned, it might be as simple as just feeling that touching at the tip of the nose or feeling the rising and falling, that movement of the abdominal wall or wherever, however it's for you relatively easy to sense the breathing in and the breathing out, right? Because it isn't about the tip of the nose and it isn't about the rising and falling of the abdomen. It's about the gathering of attention around something happening in the present moment and therefore getting a vacation from going here, that flitting about, attending to this and to that. And so when we stabilize that and... and you know, initially it might take a lot of work. Just the first few instructions, establishing mindfulness to the fore. So that means just remembering what it means to recognize this is being known. It's a little different than what we would normally think of as focusing our attention on something. Mindfulness is that recognition that breathing in is being known, assuming that that's what we're paying attention to. So we're recognizing in the present moment that breathing in is being known. So there's a reflective knowing. We're knowing that the breathing in is being known. I know that can sound a little strange, but it's really an important point for each of us to clarify in our own experience. So we really get the difference between the idea of like focusing on something, but then it could miss this reflective knowing, like the mind is knowing that this is being known. Just like uh, you're hearing my voice, presumably, but we can have that reflective knowing where I know that I'm hearing Mark's voice. There's a knowing that the hearing is being known. And it's a subtle distinction. So then, when we're aware, when we're knowing that breathing in is being known, being felt, and then knowing that breathing out is being known, being felt, and in a sense, learning how to be fully present, keeping this natural process of breathing in and out in mind, and dropping the attention to everything else and feeling the pleasure of that simplicity, of just knowing this exclusive aspect of our present moment experience. And it's really important to conjoin, to bring together the pleasure of seclusion with the breath, with the, in this case, the primary object, which is the breathing in and breathing out. Because the pleasure then, uh, it's sort of that next move that the Buddha asks us to do is to, to open, to include the totality of the whole body. So now the breathing, breathing in and breathing out, it's a little bit like the metrodome you see on pianos, right? It's just there in the background. And when we lose the breath, you can bet the mind is distracted. But now the Buddha is asking us to train ourselves. Why, 
while you're aware of the breath coming in, can you be aware of the whole body? And and it's important that we don't do what we often do when we're aware of the body. It's almost like we've got this instinct to go where there's pain and see if I can unpack it. But it's not that kind of energy work, you know, where we're using our attention to beg the body to let go of tension or something like that. It's really just a more relaxed inclusivity of the whole body. Breathing in, experiencing the whole body. And we're learning something with this third step. We're learning something about the nature of awareness. Awareness by its nature is inclusive. It doesn't put things into categories. That's our conceptualizing process. You know, when we think breath, you know, feeling the feet, hearing a sound. But actually, and you could just check right now, like awareness of the present moment. You might have a meditation habit of thinking, oh, Mark just mentioned about being aware of the present moment. And you bring your attention, you focus on one thing because you want to be a good Buddhist. But actually, when we really understand what it is to be aware of the present moment, we notice there's naturally an inclusive nature to the present moment. So this third instruction where the Buddha asks us to train ourselves while breathing in to experience the whole body and to train ourselves as we're breathing out to be aware of the whole body. And just to really begin to understand that inclusive nature. And as I mentioned in the instructions, you'll begin that initial pleasure of simplicity and seclusion now kind of has more resonance as a kind of harmonizing of the mind and body. So when that fourth instruction comes around where we're calming the body as we breathe in, calming the body as we breathe out, it's not so much that our aches and pains are going away. I mean, they might, but they might not. But what is definitely changing here is the mind is in a harmonious relationship with the experience of the body. The mind is not in conflict. So it's almost like as we're breathing in, aware of the whole body, we're being aware of the whole body with kindness, not in a conflictual way, a judgmental way, not even trying to fix the body that a willingness to be inclusive, to let the body be the body, whatever that's like as we're breathing in or breathing out, that's healing the body and mind, mind's relationship. And it feels good. And that feeling good is experienced as a bodily calm that we can begin to attend to with this fourth instruction. We're keeping that sense of calm in the body in mind as we breathe in And as we breathe out, and you might notice that it begins to spread. And you just start wherever it seems most clear that there is a little calm, a little sense of calm in the bodily activity. And just appreciate that as you breathe in, appreciate the calming sense in the body, appreciate it as you breathe out, body and mind harmonizing more and more until there's a real 
sense of integration in the wholeness of the mind and body, the non-conflict. And as you, as the mind is aware of that, you might sense that subtle joy. You know, joy is sort of an interesting thing to unpack as a sub- as a subjective experience, so not some theoretical idea of what joy should be or what joy is. But when we use the word joy to describe an experience of our heart and mind, what are we actually talking about? What's the our subjective experience of joy? So I've done this. <laughs> And uh, I encourage you to do this. And for me, you know, when I put it to words, you know, there is this activity of body and mind. That's basically what's always happening. Stuff is moving. And some of the stuff that's moving we call body, you know, sight, sound, smell, taste, and touches. All of that is in motion. There's nothing static in seeing. There's nothing static in hearing. There's nothing static and smelling and tasting and touching. Even though superficially, like if I have a real ache in my shoulder, superficially it might feel static. But when I really bring a relaxed and full attention to that seemingly solid ache, it's alive with change. It's moving, it's getting worse or getting better or morphing this way or that way. Everything is moving So back to like, what is the subjective experience of joy? Well, everything is moving, thoughts are moving, bodily activity moving. But when there is movement here in the present moment with less and less friction or resistance, then there's that lightness of heart, that buoyancy. It's really the affect of everything moving, everything happening on its own, but the mind not bothering to resist, not bothering to need to dominate or control or demand or fix. So it really arises out of a, a more natural trusting of the present moment. And why are, why would this trusting of the present moment be arising now? because there was this really nice harmonizing of the body and mind. They were getting along. And the system was beginning to feel like, oh, maybe it's okay to be a human being, because the mind and body feel pretty good together right now. And so the body and, I mean, the mind begins to drop its normal stance of, you know, fight fight or flight, you know, or being in control, it begins to relax, and as it relaxes, we experience things just happening on their own. Like the present moment is doing what it does, it, it's moving, but there's less friction. And that's what I call joy. Now the subjective experience is just, a, initially it might be very subtle. And it's really important not to believe the thought, there's no joy here. <laughs> I'm screwed. <laughs> I'm on, uh, I'm on the fifth instruction and there's no joy. <laughs> so don't worry about that. You know, just notice, well, that's just a thought. Maybe 
go back to if you were able to feel some calm, ground again in that breathing in and just aware of that relatively harmonized feeling of the body and mind, the calm in the body as you breathe in and out. And just that trust, that sense of inner safety and the lightness, like the heart, the mind not being in a defensive stance, there's some lightness to the not being in a defensive stance. Can we feel that? And you know, it's hard in practice, so much of what we're noticing is what's not there. Right? So the, like in the fourth instruction of noticing the calming of the body, what we're really noticing is the absence of the mind being in conflict with the body. So we call it calm, but we could call it the absence of the mind being, you know, domineering with the body, controlling, judgmental, not liking, trying to fix. But instead we call it calm. Same with joy. Joy is the absence, it's a, a more uh, generalized and profound trusting. Right, so trusting that movement, whatever the movement of the body and the mind, and feel the lightness, the buoyancy. And I like, you know, for some of you, more poetic expression might be useful, like an inner smile. Because there's something, when we, when the mind isn't in its normal groove of feeling like I have to, life is out to get me, so I've got to really be in this tight, controlling mode or disconnected. But when we really begin to trust the present moment and allow things to just unfold and feel that lightness, there's just that natural generosity of the heart. And that can also connect like a just a generous smile out in all directions. And that can help one attune to the experience of lightness and joy. In any case, the key is just to learn to be willing to persist. And it's not a tightness, it's like an interest in joy as I'm breathing in, being interested in joy as I'm breathing out. Can I be interested in joy as I'm breathing in? Where am I looking for joy? Here and now. Right, just right here and now. You don't have to use your physical heart, but it's totally fine to begin, you know, that sense, that curiosity here. But wherever there's some lightness, wherever there feels like there's unrestricted movement, uh, enough of a trust, enough of a safety that the heart isn't imposing, isn't locking down, right? And so then there's, there's movement without friction. Ah, Lightness is being known. Breathing out, joy is being known. And the more the heart connects, remembers, perceives, attunes to joy, breathing in, breathing out, it will naturally mature, you know, that, that lightness, that good feeling, then the heart has a sense of a more deep trust. And there's almost like a, a relaxation, a melting, a, ah, 
like different layers of defensiveness, existential defensiveness begin to release and settle. And you could call it contentedness. You could, I like the word ease because it has such a energetic or visceral sense, the word ease. And remember all the way through with these instructions, it's always okay if it's helpful to add a little phrase. So you could say, you know, when you're on this is the sixth step, one trains oneself, breathing in, experiencing ease, breathing out, experiencing ease. But, you know, you don't need to use that many words. You could just, as you sense the metrodome, metronome, is it metronome? I forget what the word is now. But anyway, as you sense the in and out breath there in the periphery, you know, you could just use the word ease as the breath is going out and the word ease. Don't feel like you have to use these meditation words, but at times it might be a useful support to bring in. And you'll find any, you know, you could use the word calm when you're on step four and joy when you're on step five, just as a reminder to the heart what you're keeping in mind as you're breathing in and what you're keeping in mind as you're breathing out. So we go from joy to a more resonant happiness we call ease. And because if we are successful in tuning in to some of the natural ease that's available. It's the ease of just letting things be. Then the Buddha suggests that we train ourselves to be aware of mental activity. Because of the presence of ease, the heart feels pretty safe and it isn't, and it feels pretty content so it's not so dependent on thoughts to make the moment interesting or to get somewhere or to get rid of something. So it can have a much more dispassionate relationship to thinking and to the mind's perceptions, what it's seeing and perceiving, what it's thinking, what it's feeling that mental activity always continues generally. It might get very refined and very subtle. But you know, that part of the mind, that's what it does. It perceives, it thinks, it feels. But now as we're breathing in aware of mental activity and breathing out aware of mental activity, so this is the seventh step, then we're, it's really aware of mental activity with a lot of natural dispassion, meaning the mind isn't dependent on its thoughts. Most of the day, we have a pretty much a dependent relationship with the thinking process and what we're perceiving. We're kind of trying to get something from our mental activity, you know, figure out like, rebrand myself, you know, I'm like, who am I? Oh, I'm this, no, that doesn't feel. There's always some tension in terms of how the mind is relating to the meaning that our thoughts are constructing. As if there's a somebody that's dependent 
on these conceptions, on the meaning that the thoughts are putting, are sort of shaping. But because the heart is feeling so much ease, now the mind is willing to let mental activity just do its thing. It's just stuff, like someone left a radio on. It's just mental activity being known. So we're not trying to suppress it. We're not trying to stop it. We're just aware of mental activity in this dispassionate way. And that, it turns out, is what quiets the mind down. Not by trying to quiet the mind down, but by relating to mental activity with dispassion, neither for nor against it, neither in need of it nor in need of getting rid of mental activity. And then the mind, the thinking mind, the perceiving mind, the feeling mind, all of that just becomes quieter and quieter. And that's the eighth step, is we're noticing the quieting. Not, so it's almost like I mentioned in the guided sit, don't tune in to the next thought or the next perception, but tune into the, almost like you're noticing the space between the thoughts or the quietness, the refinement of the thoughts, the unabrasiveness of the thoughts. Like little whispers. I don't know if you've noticed this, but sometimes in meditation, there will be mental activity, but that part of the mind isn't even bothering to make sense. It's like little fragments of mental images and thoughts, but it's almost nonsensical. And it's like, there's nobody demanding that anything explain anything or anything make sense about anything. But that part of the mind that conceives still does its thing, but in a very unimportant and refined way, not in a way that uh, causes any problems. And you can see how this, this naturally sets up the ninth instruction, right? Because now... One trains oneself while breathing in to experience the mind, the space of the mind, the knowing mind, not the activity of the mind. And I sometimes like, instead of using the word mind, or you could use the word heart, you might also want to use the space of the present moment, because this right now is a moment of mind. So you know, you might be looking at me or looking at your computer or hearing the sound of my voice or feeling your aching body or whatever it might be. But all this is being known in the space of the mind. Our experience is always mind. It's being known here in the space of the mind. But now because the activity of mind is quieted down to some degree and there's some ease, it's easier for the mind to intuit, to sense the space of the present moment. Not what's happening in the space of the present moment, but the space of here and now, the space of knowing, the open, silent, empty space. Because we're not attending to the activity of the present moment, we're training the mind to attend to the space of the present moment. Does that make sense? All of these take some training, right? And uh, 
it's just, and it's the whole path. This is what's so great about it. And you can, you know, a lot of you have done different kinds of meditation and you'll recognize this place. There's any number of ways to get to this place where you're noticing the space of the mind. And it's a really nice meditative space, which is why the um, 10th instruction, one would train oneself while breathing in to appreciate, to gladden, to respect this open, silent space, empty space of the mind. And while breathing out, to gladden it, to appreciate it, to honor it, to recognize its wholesomeness. It is good to recognize the space. You know, you could... One way to characterize an ordinary human being, like all of us, is that most of the time our mind is obsessed, fixed on the activity of the present moment, and therefore oblivious to the space of the heart, the space of the mind, the space of the present moment. And that really matters, because we're missing... I mean, just to be blunt, we're missing half of the truth of the present moment, right? We're totally aware of the gross aspect of the present moment, the activity, and totally unaware of what is subtle but significant. And it's really getting to know what's subtle that completely transforms how the heart relates to the gross, It's not actually the problem with us human beings isn't the gross experiences that we're aware of. The problem is we're missing half the picture and it distorts how we relate to the part of the picture we are aware of, the sort of gross level of sensuality. We become desperate and dependent on sensuality because we don't have the whole picture. So this third set of four instructions where we, breathing in, breathing out, experiencing the space of the mind, appreciating, gladdening, respecting, honoring that space as we breathe in and out, concentrating. That means we're exclusively aware of the beauty, the silence, the stillness, the mind that is empty of self-centered activity as we breathe in and out. And that, when that comes to fruition, that attentiveness to the space, the empty space of the mind, then the mind realizes something. It realizes a mind, this mind, a mind moment, let's say, that is empty of self-centered grasping empty of self-centered activity. And that's an important learning and a, and a really deep spiritual healing to have these moments where the mind recognizes the mind empty of selfing, empty of self-centeredness. Because until then, the mind only knew the mind somewhat affected, somewhat dependent on the view of self, on the sense of a of a location of a me and mine, an I, me, or mine, right? But because we're really appreciating 
the space, because the sense of self always is dependent on activity. It's a construction. The mind constructs the sense of a separate permanent self. So by keeping in mind the open, empty space, then there's no room for that sense of location that I, me, or mine to form. And that's a powerful awakening. And it really helps build the confidence for the last four instructions, which I'll review. And then we'll have, I think, plenty of time for a conversation. It'd be great to hear your response and your own reflections from your sit tonight or your years of practice. Because once we've had, you remember that last instruction in that third third set. So we have experiencing the mind, gladdening the mind or appreciating the mind, uh, concentrating the mind, and then liberating or releasing the mind. Right, The mind is released the grip of wrong view or of a fixed view of self. It's released. It's no longer in need of that. And then the Buddha, for the last set of four instructions then, is really a maturing of that insight of the mind empty of grasping, the mind free of self-centeredness. And it's kind of addressing the, or answering the question, what, when I keep it in mind, um, gravitates or aims the mind towards letting go, toward that insight that we had, had at step 12. So now with 13, the answer is, well, breathing in, one trains oneself while breathing in, to keep the changing nature, the impermanent nature, the insubstantial nature of experience in mind. And the same as we breathe out. Well, we've been, the breath has been there in the periphery all along. So now we can actually use the breath or any phenomena, but because we've been training with the breath, it would be an obvious choice, but it could be any phenomena, anything that's being known in the moment, We're just choosing to notice it's changing, ephemeral, insubstantial, unreliable nature. Because anything of the body and mind has that changing nature. And now we're choosing to keep it in mind as we breathe in and keep it in mind as we breathe out. So again, just let's presume we're just attending to the refined breath coming in and out and noticing You know, when something is changing, it's not really anything, right? Because before it becomes something, it's already where it is next and then where it is next. And there's something profoundly mysterious about that because we live with the idea that things are something, something that I can know and connect with and ground with, but that's not actually the nature of experience. And now because of the development of our practice, there's a a more profound curiosity because the mind has some sense of putting everything down, 
So now it's willing to let impermanence in and it matures into this dispassion. So 13 is keeping impermanence in mind as we breathe in and out. 14, we train ourselves while breathing in to sense the dispassion, a more profound and generalized. There's a really powerful image from the suttas you might have heard, and it involves a very skilled butcher who's able to very skillfully strip um, all the meat off of the bones. All that's left on the bones is maybe a little smeared blood, and he'd throw the bones on the ground for the dog, and the dog, you know, s- smelling the blood, thinks a meal. And so works really hard on the bones, but doesn't find anything there, right? And eventually realizes, well, I don't know, depends on the intelligence of the dog, I suppose. There's nothing here for me. You know, the, the story is with this simile, the, the dog chews so hard trying to get some nutriment from the bones that he ends up cutting his own gums and thinking that there is something bloody there, right? You know, it's sort of a simile that for us of like how we whip up things and it almost seems like, you know how it was, maybe you're still this way, but when we were younger, some of us partied in the way that young people party, right? And we just presumed it was fun (laughs) to do whatever that was to party, you know? And then at some point, some of us mature, I guess you'd say, and realize, you know what? Being in a room with a lot of people, you can't really have a good conversation. And being intoxicated and maybe there's smoke and it's not really fun. (laughs) You know, there's nothing here for me. There's nothing worthy of grasping. And this is this... uh, 14th step is this generalized realization that sense experience isn't worthy of grasping. Doesn't mean that it's not pleasant in that ordinary sense or unpleasant or whatever it might be. It just means that the very nature of a thought, a sound, a sensation, It's just not worthy of taking personally and trying to extract some nutriment for me. So you might see a beautiful sunset, but when this 14th training is strong, you know, where we're breathing in aware of this this, uh, way of relating with dispassion. We're relating to sensuality, to all sense experience with dispassion as we breathe in and breathe out. We don't get attached to the sunset. We might be served a wonderful meal, really tasty, but it's but there's such a clear sense that it's a nice experience and then it will end. That there's nobody trying to get something permanent from the tasty meal. And there's nobody afraid of unpleasantness when it comes our way because we realize that's also pretty ephemeral. I mean, just think about it. I'm 64. I've had some dark moments in my life. 
And surprisingly, because it doesn't seem that way when we're in the middle of a difficult time, but those dark times have come and gone. So now the next time something difficult arises, there's this cumulative experience. Yeah, it's really bad. It's really unpleasant. And it, and it's probably going to change. It won't always be this way. So this is a little bit, just trying to give you a little bit of a flavor of that dispassion that we're trying to grow by keeping it in mind, right? It's a training. One trains oneself while breathing in. Of course, we can do this all day long, keeping dispassion in mind. And we're really seeing it as a way of relating an attitude of mind that we're learning to deeply trust. This is not the same as being indifferent. It's not the same as not caring. It's not a depressed. It's a beautiful quality in the mind. You know, the Buddha talks about the joy of renunciation. So we have to reform or start fresh with this experience of dispassion, have a reset and really see for yourself what it is. And if you don't want to use that word dispassion, that's fine, because sometimes it, it's a lot of work to reform a word that has a history. So just have a different word, you know, whatever you want to call it. But the joy of non-dependence. And then that that deepening that more profound trust of dispassion leads to the the next uh, so this would be step 15 uh, the word is cessation gets translated as cessation so we're, we're seeing how it's because of course the awakening process that's what this fourth set of four instructions it's really the awakening process Everything up to that point, the first 12 steps, were really helping the confidence, the spiritual maturity, so that the heart can really more directly engage the awakening process. And the awakening process is connecting with things just as they are, changing. The natural process then leads to the heart becoming naturally more dispassionate, Dispassion leads to letting go. The, the moments of any dependence on experience and even insight, dependence on insight, dependence on existence itself, the dependence ceases. The grasping ceases. Grasping insight, wanting to be wise, wanting to be free, the dependence on that idea ceases, wanting to be somebody, like to exist, that dependence ceases, right? And this is gives the heart a flavor of what can be let go. And then step 16 is that letting go itself. You know, and, and this to me, that my understanding is it's, it's a little bit like a implosion or a free fall. But it's, it's an experience. It, we want to have a lot of humility with this, these last four instructions. You know, we can have a sense of the first two, 
like when the mind is really has a nice balance and there's some real continuity of present moment awareness and we remember to be interested in the underlying nature, how ephemeral, we, we can really see that deeper sense of dukkha that nothing is really worthy of attaching to, of grasping. That we can, you know, a lot of, um, you know, experienced practitioners can have a real sense, intuitive spiritual sense of these first two. And then when we have moments of the cessation and the deeper experience of letting go, these are pretty life-transforming moments. Um, but even understanding intellectually is very important. It can be supportive of confidence, because at times the practice is really challenging, and to really support our persistence. But remember, before I open it up for a conversation, remember we're guided all the way through this whole spiritual adventure by pleasure. But it's a different kind of pleasure than nice experience, comfortable experience. The initial pleasure is the pleasure of seclusion and simplicity, that I don't have to be responsible for the diversity of my experience. I can just simply now breathing in and breathing out. And that's such a relief not to be responsible to all the other phenomena in the present moment and to have this more exclusive attention and then to begin to open up but now in this sort of non-judging way like that inclusive awareness of the whole body. It's pleasurable. That harmonizing of the body and the mind is pleasurable. The keeping joy in mind is very affirming and pleasurable and the opening and keeping ease of heart that contentment is pleasurable and to be aware of mental activity without being pushed around by it is pleasurable <laughs> you know and the quieting of the mind is pleasurable and recognizing the space and stillness and openness of the present moment <clears throat> is profoundly subtly but profoundly pleasant and the maturing of that stillness and the profound trust and the dropping of all, you know, the duality and just the way the sense of self fragments, you know, even liking the nice stillness, it fragments, it ruins it, it stains it in a way. So we abandon even the one who's really liking the silence and the stillness because it's extra doesn't help anybody, isn't needed. That's pleasurable. And the whole, the last set of four, that process of insight or the deepening of insight is in a way the most subtle, wonderful pleasure. Like, because it really heals this deep existential anxiety about what are we, what are we going to do with this life of ours? What's the point? There is a point. The point is to let go. Letting go doesn't mean non-existence. It means non-dependence on existence. That's why in early Buddhism and Theravada Buddhism, you'll see in the text, you know, the one of the synonyms for nibbana or liberation is deathlessness, the deathless, right? 
because it's the release of any dependence on existence, any dependence on sensuality, any dependence on anything. So really nice to share this with you and I look forward to our conversation now. Looks like we have about 20 minutes and uh, I don't know if um, somebody is going to help with the conversation or should I just manage? And as Diana mentioned, you can put a question into the chat if you don't want your voice recorded. But otherwise, I'm really okay with this size group, just people unmuting themselves. If you don't want your video captured, you can shut your video off and then you can just speak. And if two people start to talk at one time, one of you can be polite and let the other person go. And then we'll keep your uh, keep you in mind for the next person. And if you know how to raise your digital hand, that always helps get keep things organized. Yeah, anybody have any comments or questions about the Buddhist teachings and mindfulness of breathing or really anything related to practice that seems relevant? Marco, may I ask you a question, which is just a clarification, so I better understand what you were saying. Uh, so you talked about knowing, especially in the first two sets of instructions, you talked about knowing a lot. And I'm trying to comprehend that. And so the question I have is, essentially, are you saying it's a knowing which occurs without any labeling? In other words, it's a deep understanding of what is happening, but you're not labeling it. You're kind of aware of it, but there's no thought about it. Would that interpretation be accurate? Well, there, there, yeah, that's a good question. There can be a thought, but the thought, any thought related to establishing mindfulness to the fore... Um, would be aiming the mind toward that recognition because it's it's like a mental capacity, that reflective awareness, what we call sati, the Pali word sati, that it's, it's like remembering this capacity that we all have right now. We have this capacity to recognize that there is consciousness how do I know there's consciousness? Because consciousness is knowing this right now. So the awareness or sati remembers to recognize that there is knowing. So in a way, you could say there's a knowing of what the mind is knowing. And that's what we mean. And it's really worth not rushing that and going back to that place as often as you need to, like, if at any point in your practice you get lost in thought, it may be well worth our time to just establish mindfulness to the fore, as the Buddha says, where we're remembering there is this capacity. And then to choose to use the breath for a few seconds or a little longer, depending on how stirred up the mind got because of the distraction, that 
oh yeah, I can, I can remember that breathing in is being known. I can keep remembering that breathing out, the sensations of breathing out, is being known or being felt. Does that get at what you were asking? Yeah, um, I have to listen to you talk again because you had some very interesting ways of describing which I have not heard before. And that's, so the question I asked was really based on my previous understanding to some extent. But yeah, I think it did. Uh, but I do need to kind of listen to the talk again to get a better understanding. Yeah, and it's really good with these sort of... Uh, understandings of mindfulness is to like hear the words think about it so that you're kind of connecting the new words with your existing understanding and then to just play with it directly to look at your mind directly and to recognize that capacity and then to reform the words so it so the words that you do use really come out of your own subjective experience of awareness Thank you. Yeah, thanks for the good comment. Looks like uh, Becca put something in the chat here. Let me read that. I noticed that as my mind got quieter, fear began to arise. I've experienced this before. How to convince the mind to trust the letting go? Just understanding why it's happening does not help it release. Yeah, I mean, that, that fear that comes up is a natural process too, right? Because it's a newer experience and things that are unknown evoke fear. And I'm wondering, you know, if we just keep at it and don't force it, whether that kind of fear naturally diminishes. I'm guessing that it does, at least to some degree. But, uh, you know, intellectually, and, you know, it may not be helpful as you suggest in your comment, Becca, but intellectually, we know we're not doing anything weird or dangerous, right? I mean, what are we doing? We're just being aware of the present moment and noticing basically the whole 16 steps. We're just noticing more and more subtle aspects of what's always been here, right? So how could that be dangerous? But it, but it does seem that way. So I'm not diminishing. I, you know, I think probably every meditator gets to places where there, that sort of deeper fear can come up. Because we don't, we don't really recognize what the mind thinks it's dependent on until we begin to let it go. <laughs> and then we realize, oh, I was kind of trusting that. I was kind of dependent on that. You know, and as the mind begins to build its trust, like I was talking about dispassion, like nothing is needed. But the key is not to feel like we have to force things. So if when fear arises, I just remind myself that what I'm doing as a practitioner, as a meditator, is I'm doing my best to align with a natural process. 
It's not my business to make insight happen or to let go. My business as a meditator is to align with nature. And just like some aspects of nature take us into these vortexes, you know, these torments of our heart where we're caught up in lust or caught up in hate or caught up in denial and distraction. But there are other natural processes that naturally, they have their own natural feedback mechanism, naturally lead in wholesome directions. And that's what the awakening process is. And that's why teachers make a big deal out of tuning into the pleasure of the process itself, because that is what initiates the natural process, the feedback mechanism. We're following a thread of pleasure that gets more and more profound and refined. So we need to catch it early, that initial pleasure, because it has the flavor of letting go right at the beginning. Like I'm letting go of the diversity of my experience. I mean, as an animal, to choose not to attend to the sounds in the room and not to attend to the sights and not to attend to the other sensations in my body and not to attend to the thoughts that I'm thinking, that's a real letting go already, just to be with the sensations of breathing in and the sensations of breathing out. So even the first step, I'm learning like, hey, I can trust, just like we have to do at night when we fall asleep. I mean, here we are, we're an animal, a vulnerable animal, and what do we do? We're choosing to not be on the lookout for threats for some period of time. So that's what we're doing just in a conscious way when we're sitting, especially in those early steps where we're like, I'm not going to attend to thought. I'm not going to attend to sight. I'm just going to be interested in the breathing in process and then the breathing out process. And uh, so at any step, we might experience that kind of fear. And uh, the antidote is to really um, get interested in the natural pleasure through the awakening process, through the practice process, even if you have to kind of go back a little bit where you find that trust in the present moment. Yeah, it feels good to be connected. And then you could always, we can always ask ourselves, like if a lot of fear gets triggered, what can I pay attention, what can I do and pay attention to where all there will be a natural sense of safety, a natural ability to gather the attention in the present moment. Maybe you have to get up and make a cup of tea, but you can do that with a fullness of presence, or maybe you need to take a walk with a friend, but do it with a fullness of presence. So sometimes we have to back out of the more subtle areas of practice into more gross, where we do feel safe being radically present when we're walking with a friend and making jokes together. So do that and build a confidence that being present is safe. Yeah, thanks for the good question, comment. Looks like Robin has something here. Um, The space of the present moment 
the space between our inhalations and exhalations of breath, the space when we pause before we speak, can be so challenging for some. Our mind loves to fill in the space. How freeing to just let go and honor the space. Yeah, and I really loved these examples because it, it just broadens how we can do this practice all day long. Just noticing space, the little pauses. And it's almost like, uh, you know, when people talk about deeper insights into impermanence, it's really this birth and death all the time. And this sentence ceases. And then there's the birth of the next thought or the next sentence. And there's so many of these little and bigger births and deaths. Start where it's easy with you, like... You have an interaction with your cat and then you just let the whole moment implode. And then there's another, the cat nuzzles up against and you have a, a moment of interaction or with your partner or with yourself. But just really get interested in the cessations. So there, that way life starts to feel so much more fresh because it's like a new birth. And, but that freshness depends on a more complete recognition of that letting go of that cessation, that ending. Or as um, Robin was saying, that empty space. Yeah, and then Alexa asks about uh, to touch on indifference, as you mentioned, yeah, that, that's, uh, I think, an important, like in communities like the uh, Insight Community in San Diego, in your friendships, it's always good to, you know, with our Dharma friends, to be on the lookout for complacency, like no longer that curious, like we are when we're on fire with the Dharma. But, you know, then we can also be quite attached to making progress. So there's shadows to that, too. But the other thing we always want to be uh, attentive to is this sense of indifference. Because when we get a stronger intellectual understanding of the practice, it's very easy for a kind of nihilism and indifference to creep in. Or what's the point? It's all empty. But it, that only comes with a self-view. That sense of indifference always involves a sense of a self who no longer cares because life isn't really able to deliver anything to me. But what really liberates the heart isn't that sense experience can't make me happy. What liberates the heart is rea the realization there's nobody dependent on sense experience making them happy. So indifference is a wrong turn in the practice, but it comes up quite regularly for us. Um, and we just need to see it and feel it as a kind of aversion. And, and out of compassion for ourselves, we care. Oh, indifference hurts. I mean, it's really that simple. It's not helpful. 
being indifferent, being disconnected, thinking it's not worth it. I don't know if most of you probably know Pema Children, but she has a great line. I really love this line. Um, she went talking about refuge, you know, refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. I mean, it's really refuge in this path of awakening. And she succinctly sums it up as um, refuge means not holding back. You know, really the opposite of indifference. We're, we're all in, all into being human, all into being embodied, emotional beings with likes and dislikes, we're all in. Because we don't have to be afraid of embodiment. We don't have to be afraid of the messy world. We don't have to be afraid of our imperfect personalities. That fear is a misunderstanding that comes from a wrong view of what's happening. Indifference arises because of wrong view, not because of right view. We have time for one more comment, if anybody has uh, reflections to share, another question. Uh, Mark, yeah. Um, I just want to say, first of all, thanks for the talk. I thought it was terrific. And I loved hearing just about the pleasure aspect in the sitting in the quiet, um, in part because um, I, I do experience that. and. Um, and maybe sometimes feel a little guilty that um, I'm, you know, I'm in this space that's just really pleasant and can sit there for a while. So I, I love hearing that that's actually part of the path to move us forward. Yeah, and we really have to keep saying that because there's a, this is another one of the shadows, maybe a little bit more in early Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, our tradition, insight meditation, this kind of grimness. And it's, again, it's just misplaced. I mean, it's understandable because it's not easy being human beings, but the path is a path of real pleasure. It's just not in the direction of sense pleasure. It's, it's a, the pleasure, I mean, it's really the whole pleasure of renunciation, of letting go, of giving up. But it's real. And it's definitely to be enjoyed because the thing about spiritual pleasure is it's onward leading. I mean, yeah, we can get attached. We will get attached. But if we really like the pleasure, getting attached to it ruins it. So as long as we really care about the inner pleasure of seclusion and letting go, it's onward leading. It's an important part of that feedback mechanism. So I appreciate the testimonial, Mark. And really nice to be with everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.